Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Office Access, where authors get published and published authors get successful. Hi, I'm Irene Watson with Reader Beauty in Austin, Texas. And I'm Victor Volkman with Loving Healing Press in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I'd like to welcome all our listeners to episode number 115 in our series. Tonight's topic will be how to talk about green marketing, reaching the environmentally aware customers. And our special guest is Shell Horowitz. You can learn more about all of our guests on the Authors Access website, which is authorsaccess.com. We'd love to hear your questions and comments about tonight's show. Please send them to info at authorsaccess.com. Now, tonight we are on the line with Shell Horowitz, an ethical slash green marketing expert, book shepherd, writer, international speaker, consultant, community organizer, and frugalist. Shell has been involved in environmental and social change movements his entire life, uh, starting with a community group that opposed a nuclear power plant, which would have been just two miles north of New York City, and he was a veteran of the 1977 Seabrook occupation. His first book, written when he was only 22, was about why nuclear power makes no sense. Shell is also the author of the ebook Painless Green, 111 Tips to Help the Environment, Lower Your Carbon Footprint, Cut Your Budget, and Improve Your Quality of Life with No Negative Impact on Your Lifestyle. He is directly responsible for the first non-smokers rights regulations in Northampton, Massachusetts, and for the defeat of a large and inappropriate mountaintop development in his current hometown of Hadley, Massachusetts. His down-to-business webzine was one of the first business publications to have a regular section on sustainability. Shell now offers not only copywriting and strategic marketing planning based in green principles, but also helps unpublished writers become published authors. Five of his eight books have won awards and have been republished in other countries, including his most recent, Guerrilla Marketing Goes Green, Winning Strategies to Improve Your Profits and Your Planet, from John Wiley and Sons, 2010. Co-authored with J. Conrad Levinson, Mr. Guerrilla Marketing himself. In this new book, he states that honesty, integrity, and commitment to environmental sustainability are important, but market share is often the wrong metric entirely, that long-term relationships are better than a one-time sale, and that competitors can be your best allies. Wow, this is really interesting stuff. So it's my pleasure to welcome Shell back to the show. Uh, it's been actually three and a half years, but we have missed you. Well, thank you. It's good to be here, and thank you for that lovely introduction. I want to meet this guy. <laughs> well... That's good, because we are meeting him right now. <laughs> so, Shell, first of all, before we go any further in this, green marketing. What is green marketing? Well, it's the idea that you want to reach the green consumer, the consumer that cares about sustainability of the planet, that is perhaps willing to make some lifestyle or shopping choices to help preserve the planet that we have, and to create first of all, a business persona that is based honestly on those principles, and second, to find the message points that will help you communicate that to the audience and make the audience run up and say, we've been waiting for you, where have you been? Let's do some business. So our major uh, audience here are authors. Mm -hmm. And how can authors actually be green? 
Well, one thing you can do is, one of the things I did with Wiley is I asked them, can we do this book on recycled paper? And they said, sure. Most publishers are aware, I think, of the Green Press Initiative and the uh, Forest Stewardship Council certification, some of the other things that you can do to make sure that the book is produced in an environmentally friendly manner. Um, one other thing you can do is talk to your publishers, or if you are your publisher, about print runs. I think for most books, the day of printing 10 or 20,000 copies and having most of them molded in a garage somewhere and eventually be thrown out need to be over. And, of course, the contents of your books, <laughs> you know, what you write about. You can be sensitive to your characters, anything from not showing smoking in a positive way to having them bicycle to work. You know, there's a lot you can do. And um, my... Um, my previous book that you had me on three years ago was called Grassroots Marketing for Authors and Publishers, and I did that in small runs. And as a result, I have no boxes of books sitting in my attic. I just print more when I need them. You know, that's such a good point for print-on-demand. There's so much negative stuff. I'm just going to stop by many people about POD, and, you know, many authors are shunned because of that. But your concept of it being green... Mm-hmm. And, you know, the quality has come a long way. POD from 1995 was pretty tatty looking. Um, but also the, the negative brush about POD is not about the print delivery system. It was really about the companies that call themselves POD publishers, which are really just a short press-run version of the old vanity press. And there are some, mind you, there are some projects for which they are right. I occasionally send a client to uh, one of those houses if the print run, the total life expectancy for the book is going to be like 50 copies, why bother getting set up with your own ISBNs and all the rest of it? Exactly. But, you know, for most people, it's better to either be your own publisher or find a traditional publisher. Well, with, you know, it's not easy to find a traditional publisher. No, it's not. <laughs> uh, most of my clients end up actually, I walk them through the process of, of starting their own company and of doing a book that is as good as anything they could have done with a traditional publisher. Exactly. Of course, ebooks are another green. Yes, way of, uh, yes, they are. Um, especially if the people on the other end don't print, don't press the print button. Uh -huh. I'm finding that one of the things I've done in my life is I've simply bumped up the type size on screen in some applications, and it used to be if anything was more than about 10 pages, I would hit print. And now I will sometimes read a 30-page ebook on the screen because I've made it big enough to be comfortable, and I've also gotten better glasses. It helps, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was mentioned about shopping choices. So then, on the other hand, then that turns around. It's not the author, but it's the reader. And uh, so what are you seeing as the trends in shopping choices by the readers? Well, and this goes beyond the book industry. I'm seeing a lot more awareness, for example, of buying recycled products, of buying organic and fair trade, of buying products that are made close to home when possible. Um, there's, there's a lot more awareness generally of the concept that's called cradle to cradle, where you aim for essentially zero waste. Whatever waste outputs you would have been generating in the past become inputs for some other system. And we talk about this some in the book, about how, for example, brewery waste becomes a very fertile medium to grow mushrooms. Great. Well, that is, that's, that's a great analogy. <laughs> 
Uh, I'd like to back up just a little bit because I personally have tried to read the Forestry Stewardship Council guidelines and understand what the certifications are, but I haven't been able to quite wrap my wits around it. Can you break it down into simpler terms, the certifications? I think this is a broad generality. I have not struggled through all the whys and wherefores of their language either, but the basic, and I, I basically let my printers do this for me. Um, but my understanding is that paper that is Forest Stewardship Council certified meets a number of standards as to how it's cut, what kind of tree, what percentage is new trees, and what percentage is, is from old paper, um, how the forests are managed. And the basic idea is that if you buy FSC paper for your printing project, that you're getting a, a um, respected imprimatur that it was grown in an environmentally sustainable way. That may still mean that there are some virgin trees in there, but the trees are culled from a forest as opposed to clear cutting. You know, they cut just the ones they need. Stuff like that. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I can wrap my wits around that. Uh, yeah. You know, Green Fest Initiative's website has a lot of information that's pretty easy to digest. Great. Yeah, and I know speaking of print-on-demand, I, I talked to Lightning Source earlier this year, and they're pretty much up to spec on all the FSC stuff, yeah, at least yeah, as far as I could tell. And I believe CreateSpace is also on board with some of this. I'm not sure of that. Yeah, it's becoming – the nice thing is um, 2003, when I went to press with uh, Principal Profit, the book that later evolved into Guerrilla Marketing Goes Green – and that was a self-published book, and it was probably the last book I will ever publish in an offset run. And at that point, I looked around for decent recycled paper at a decent price, and I wasn't able to do that. And now you can get paper that's, you know, I look at my book from Wiley, which is printed on recycled paper, and I cannot tell by looking at it it's that good. Wow, that's great. And the prices are pretty compatible now, too. The, uh, you might pay just a few cents more per book, or maybe not even. Right. I'm waiting for that to happen with copy paper. <laughs> I'm still paying about $50 a case for recycled copy paper, and I know I can get unrecycled for about half that. But what I did to make my paper last longer and to be more green uh, was I bought a duplexing laser printer when my old laser printer died. So that means I can print on both sides of the page, and not everything, obviously, if I'm printing a document that's an odd number of pages or there are certain applications where you don't want two-sided printing, I'm not saving quite 50%, but I'm probably saving 40% with my paper. And at $50 a case, I definitely noticed that. This printer paid for itself in just a few months in saved paper. Yeah, that's a great so again, tip. One of the things I, I say in the book, Victor, is that there is no conflict between being green and being economical. Often, the more green choice is the more economical choice. So here, cutting my paper bill by 40% as well as cutting my paper use by 40% are two very good things to do. Most definitely, and we haven't uh, really mentioned shipping. I mean, there was all this talk last year about the 2,500-mile uh, uh, head of lettuce, but you could easily have your, your books printed in Florida, stored in a warehouse in California, and the customer orders it, and it's sent to New York. So, yes. Yeah, but, you know, one of the things about the on-demand model is you can get away from that. So, for example, if you're printing with lightning source and you get an order from Germany, they can print it in the U.K. or even in Germany, and there's, you're not shipping it across the ocean. 
Yeah, I, I use Lightning Source UK, and, and and there's a lot of sales in the UK. I just would never ever make if if I couldn't have them printed in Milton well, Keynes. The customer isn't going to pay the twelve or fifteen dollars to ship it over. Absolutely. Let's uh, segue a little bit and talk about green events. I remember there was a uh, political convention. I think it might have been the Democratic one where they tried to make everything as green as possible. And I wonder if you have some ideas for green author events. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, I just got back from speaking at an event called Solar Fest in Vermont. And they, true to their name, they did a lot of things very, very, very green. First of all, they had recycling separation centers all over the grounds so that your bottles go in one place and your compostables, including paper, went in another. It was on a working farm. Uh, everything was solar-powered. They had arrays in all sorts of places, on the rooftops and also in, on the grounds. And um, the, A lot of the vendors were very green-oriented. Uh, the books and products that were for sale were all very green-oriented. There was a lot of stuff, a lot of good thinking, and it wasn't just a concert. They had workshops. That's why they had me. I was talking about green marketing. And, um, you know, at every level, you can be looking at things, something as simple as the water you serve, okay? Bottled water, a lot of people don't realize, bottled water consumes about three times as much water plus assorted oil to make the plastic as is in the bottle. So if you switch to filtered tap water, to give to all your speakers and attenders, you can be making a huge difference. Save bottled water for the situations where the water isn't good enough to drink. And right. If you're traveling in, in you know, some parts of Mexico where the sanitation is very poor, that's when you want bottled water. But for everyday use, again, both economically and environmentally, you're much, much better off with something that isn't bottled. That's one example, okay? Uh, lighting in the room, air conditioning needs temperature control. Look for venues where you can actually open the window, and if the temperature range is, say, 55 to 75, everybody would be more comfortable. Uh, obviously, if the temperature is 95 outside, then you don't want to do that. But you can do things like use awnings and curtains and shades to block some of that hot, hot summer sun. Um, and you can use window blankets to, cool, to keep the warm air inside on a cold winter night here in New England. You can look at the food that you're serving at this event. You can look at how much of it can be grown locally or, or shipped from within, say, 100 miles as opposed to shipped from across the country. Get a better quality of food, too, but a lot of institutional kitchens aren't really set up to deal with that. You'll see that changing in a few years, just as you saw a huge shift in hotel towel use over the last 10 years. Hotels all of a sudden got the idea that they could encourage people to be green and not have their towels washed every single day if they're on a, say, three or four nights stay in the same room. And this, of course, saved a ton of water and a ton of money. And I'm speaking ton as metaphorical. It's actually many, many tons of water that are saved um, because they were not having to do nearly as much laundry. Their towels are lasting longer. They're not using all that hot water. They're not using all that petroleum to heat the water. And on and on it goes. And, of course, many venues now are starting to put in at least solar hot water systems and sometimes photovoltaic and uh, well-insulated buildings. And you can ask all of these kinds of questions. You can go deeper and deeper and deeper with this. Well, this is certainly some great ideas. And I'm listening to you talking, Shell, that, you know, authors can really take advantage of this. And advertise their book launches as being green. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think definitely that would be a, 
I don't know of anybody that has done that. At least I think I, I know of a couple people, but it's not common. It's not common, but so therefore, if it's not common, then why not do it? Mm-hmm. So that, I did a little bit of that with the launch for Guerrilla Marketing Goes Green. Mm-hmm. First of all, it was largely Internet-based, and that's very green. Right. Um, and there are ways of making that even greener if you check into solar-powered web hosting and that sort of stuff. Um, but also, I did make note of the fact that the book was done in an environmentally sensitive manner as well as having environmentally appropriate subject matter. And, yeah, so you can do these things. And I think it did get a little bit more notice in some places because of that. And, you know, in the past when I've done books, I've always gotten endorsements, and usually people who are well-known in the marketing world or in the book publishing world. And for this book, I had all those people, but I also went and got some very well-credentialed environmental people to endorse the book. And that's important, too. And so let's talk a little bit about what other green marketing venues or events or suggestions that you have for authors because as I say most of the people that are listening to this podcast are authors or publishers mm-hmm. well I think you want to look at really some of the message points uh, you can look at any aspect as I think you've probably gotten a sense from hearing me rattle on about hotels uh, you wind me up and give me a topic that I'll give you the green spin on it um, but the, the idea of reaching the green consumer with a message that's going to resonate, I'll give you an, a negative example, okay, of a company that there is a certain paper products company called Markel. They sell a lot in the Northeast. They went recycled before it was fashionable. Would you like to guess the year, either of you? Uh, I don't have a clue. All right. The year was 1950. Wow. Jeez. I was born in 1956. So for six years before I was even a dot on the landscape, they were using recycled paper. They didn't tell anybody. They totally didn't tell anybody. And that may have been a sensible business decision in the 50s when people were like, oh, you know, you're using my old junk to make toilet paper? Ew. But, you know, by certainly 1972 or thereabouts, there was enough of a market that was beginning to be aware. I, as a customer, if I had known there was a reasonably priced recycled paper available, I would have bought nothing else, you know? Um, I didn't know that it was recycled until a year or two ago. They didn't put it on their packaging until about five years ago at all. And over the last few years, they've realized that this is a huge asset. They've made it bigger and more prominent on their packaging. And they did a big rebranding in 2009 and launched this Small Steps brand and talked about saving a million trees. And interestingly enough, I use them as a case study in a lot of my speeches. So I had written to them and said, can you send me some PR shots of your old packaging from like 19. So I have a 1965 toilet paper roll as part of the slideshow from them. But I didn't have to dig up the photo. I just had to contact their PR department and say, can I have one? Uh, They asked me for a copy of the slides. And a month or two after I sent them the slides, they did another relabeling. And now you really cannot miss the message of recycled paper and save a million trees. And I like to think I had something to do with that. Yeah, that's a great story. I like that. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, guerrilla marketing and and, and what's your particular spin on on the green aspect of that? Well, Guerrilla Marketing Goes Green tries to – it's a very ambitious book. It's a book that I, I really think could change the business world. It has a few key focuses. One of them is the carryover message from the self-published book, Principal Profit, which is that ethics is a success strategy. Ethics is something you do both because it's the right thing to do and because it's good for your business. Uh, being green conscious is a part of that. 
you, I don't think can be, you can be ethical if you're actively engaged in polluting and anti-environmental activities. Uh, I think you can be green without being ethical, but you cannot be ethical without being green. And of course, I prefer when people do both. So one, one piece of the book is providing the think piece, the underpinning to make sense of that strategy, to show how this works, to show how in uh, the kind of competitive environment we have in our economy, that this gives you a competitive advantage. And that also that you can look at new business models such as a cooperative business model where you actually partner with the people you're supposed to be competing with. There's a lot of very exciting stuff going on in that regard. I, just, I can use the book itself as an example because, in a sense, my co-author, Jay Conrad Levinson, inventor of the Gorilla Marketing brand back in 1984, in a sense, he and I are competitors. We both offer marketing consulting. We both speak on marketing. Uh, but we built an alliance. Okay? And what did that, how did that shake down? Okay? We went with John Wiley and Sons as a publisher. I didn't self-publish this. Wiley typically pays about $15,000 for a marketing book from someone with a reputation comparable to mine. Wiley paid $30,000 for this one. So divide that by two, half goes to Jay, half goes to me. I end up with the same $15,000, but I end up with a book that Wiley is going to take much more seriously because they have more invested in it. I end up with access to Jay's enormous list of 84,000 paying members of the Guerrilla Marketing Association. I've done a call like this with them. I have another one scheduled in the fall. I have articles in their newsletter. I've gotten a nice plug from the editor of their newsletter, who is Jay's daughter. Uh, you know, so I've been able to leverage that a lot of ways. Then by having Jay in the book, I'm able to go to other partners and say, hey, look, this is a big thing. You want to be part of it. We went to Green America as our charity partner for the launch, and we said, we'll give you a little bit of the proceeds of the first month's sales, and in return, you can tell your 94,000 people about us. And they did. So we've been able to really make the whole pie a lot higher, if you will, uh, to use George W. Bush's phrase. It's the only thing you'll ever hear me quoting him. Um, but I, I just love that, make the pie higher. I just think it, it, it has some poetic resonance that he probably didn't intend. Uh, but anyway, the end result of all the various partnerships I formed to launch this book, I have about 10,000 people on my email. We got over 1 million exact match hits for the book title, Guerrilla Marketing Goes Green, on Google within a few weeks of launch. If you figure an average, and I'm being very conservative here, an average of five people saw each of those web pages, that is five million people. So by partnering with my so-called competitor, I was able to expand the number of people who knew about this book from 10,000 to 5 million. I think that says a lot about the power of partnership. And this is something, by the way, big companies do also. The first car I ever bought new as opposed to used was a 1988 Chevy Nova designed by Toyota and built by Chevy to their specifications. Uh, in the 90s, I had a computer that ran the PowerPC chip. This was a joint venture of Apple, IBM, and Motorola. And one of my favorite examples, the one that blows people's doors off, can you think of two more competitive entities than FedEx and the United States Postal Service? Right, exactly. Well, do you know how Express Mail gets from city to city? Uh, are you going to tell me it's FedEx? <laughs> yes, exactly. FedEx does the airport-to-airport -airport run for Express Mail. 
they get to fly a full plane and bill the post office for doing that. And the post office knows that they're offering a guaranteed one-day delivery service. FedEx can actually make that guarantee workable uh, because they have the logistics support to know where a package is and to, to be able to get it there on time. So this is one of those things where everybody wins. Michelle, you had uh, mentioned about competitors, and I'm wondering what your suggestion would be to authors as how they can partner up with another author. Oh, it's so perfect, Irene. Um, okay, let's say you write about golf or cooking or marketing or whatever it is that you write about. Do you think you're going to go into anybody's personal library and find one book on that topic? <laughs> I mean, you know, what if you know a cook and you're buying presents for that cook, what do you get them? Another cookbook. <laughs> you know, so it's really easy for authors to partner because it is an expandable market. It is an elastic market, to use the economics term. Um, the more titles that are out there, the more some people will buy all of them. And so you partner with the people who are doing good stuff in your niche that is complementary to yours, and you say to them, hey, I'm doing a mailing to this list of 10,000 people who are into women's lacrosse. I see you have a book on women's lacrosse playing field. Would you like to go in on the mailing? And you find three, four publishers to do this, and all of a sudden your cost per envelope is down around a nickel or a dime instead of 35, what about 35, living in the past year, 55 cents or so when you count the postage, the printing, and all the rest of it. And, uh, you know, so you've cut your cost, you've built your market, uh, you're adding more value to your customers. There's really no downside. And I do talk quite a bit, by the way, in the book about how to do these kinds of partnerships. So, you know, you're talking about nonfiction books, and that seems to be more simple than, I would think, let's say, talk about a mystery book or... Well, again, you go together with, say, two other publishers and put together a package of, here are your five best beach reading books for this season. Here are your five best books for Christmas break. Uh, get it all in one place, one-stop shopping, uh, save money over buying them individually, tell your friends... There's, I don't think it's difficult with fiction. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, you want to support the people who are doing right by you. You're expanding the whole market. I think one of the best things that happened to reading in our future generation, the, the people my kids' age, was J.K. Rowling. Well, what happened? People read the Harry Potter books, and that while they were still coming out, they might have to wait two or three years for the next one. So in the meantime, they might dig into Garth Nix or Philip Pullman, they would discover other authors who were kind of somewhat similar, and they would go out and start reading those people and become fans of them. didn't stop them from buying the next Harry Potter when it finally did come out. Great. Absolutely. That's a very good point. Uh, there's yeah, you know, Amazon does this. Amazon said, oh, people who, you've all seen this, the people who bought this book also bought X, Y, and Z. Oh, Z looks kind of interesting. Maybe I'll buy it. Yeah, I, I admit I've been pulled into that more than once, and I'm usually happy. <laughs> we all have. Yeah, yeah. And bookstores do the same thing. Uh, one of the clever things I talk about in my book marketing book, actually, there's a friend of mine named Kari Anderson out in California, and she talks about how if you're setting up a bookstore signing, you go to the bookstore ahead and say, don't just stock my book. I'm going to be talking in my talk about these two, three other books by other authors and they become the recommended reading list for my talk, and you get to sell a bunch. And what do the bookstores say? They, they start, you know, bowing down at you and saying, my God, somebody's thinking about us for a change. Right. This is kind of like Miracle on 34th Street uh, marketing here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's an old concept. It's nothing new. Uh, you could go back and find it in the Old Testament. 
All right, let's talk about that old publisher's nemesis, the used book trade. You know, because the author never makes another dollar, no matter how many times the book is resold. Is there a green silver lining to this? The green silver lining is simply that fewer books have to be printed. But it's as an author, it's not a great thing. As a consumer, of course, I love it. (laughs) But... um, you know, as we move into the electronic age, more books are going to be updated faster. And there will be, I think, some changes in the scene that are hard for me to predict exactly how they're going to shake out. But as far as a green perspective, I think used books are a good thing. And we have to remember that there's a certain percentage of the used book market that is not a customer for new books. They don't have the money or whatever it is they're much more likely to pay $5 for a book than 15 or 25 or 30 So we have to see these as building the audience for reading, and we have to hope that as these people perhaps are poor students or unemployed uh, housewives or whatever, as they start to get their economic feet on the floor, that they will eventually start buying new books at least as gifts, if not for themselves. But, you know, it's a long struggle, and it's not an easy model, and we have to remember, we as authors have to remember that we're selling information, and information can be packaged in many, many different ways. Uh, my wife is addicted to books on audio. You know, she reads plenty of books on paper, too, but she commutes to work, and she insists on having a book, and heaven help us if we go on a long drive, if we get in New York or Boston or, you know, Minnesota or whatever, and we don't have books on CD with us. Uh, we don't have a very stormy person. So, um, you know, she is an audience for... I'm not a particularly big consumer of audiobooks, except when I'm in the car with her. But um, I consume a lot of audio in the form of educational CDs, recordings of programs like this one. That's what I tend to listen to. I don't commute to work, so I'm not in the car as much as she is. But when, like, I drove to SolarFest, I packed about eight educational CDs with me from various teleseminars I hadn't had a chance to listen to. And I listened to, I think, five of them on the way there and back. So, you know, we all consume information in different ways. And uh, we're all markets. I, I, make, I am a reader. I, I am an addicted reader, I confess. I need a 12-step program or something. I, I usually have seven or eight books going at once in different parts of the house and in different cars and different backpacks and different purposes, like, you know, I'll read a different kind of book at night when I'm on my exercise bike than I will if I'm reviewing for my column on business books. Well, gosh, uh, you've really given us a great information, Shell, and I know that our listening audience is, is really going to be thinking twice about how they can go green in the time to get this information out. I'd like you to give our listening audience your website address. Sure. For this book, it is GorillaMarketingGoesGreen.com, and Gorilla is a tricky word to spell. It is G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A. So two R's, two L's, no O. It is not Gorilla like the ape. GorillaMarketingGoesGreen.com. And with this particular book, I have put together a very, very juicy package of extra goodies, more than $2,000 worth. If you buy the book anywhere, Amazon, your local bookstore, me, whatever, and you go to that site, GorillaMarketingGoesGreen.com, and you click on the bonus link, you'll see all the goodies there, and you can register for them just by giving your name and email address. And at that point, you will be paying at most 
well, uh, to get more than $2,000 worth of stuff that's going to help you run your business better, be more green, and all the rest of it. And the book itself like, is just fabulous. I mean, we have not begun to scratch the surface of what is in this book. Wow, that's great. Again, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to be with us. Well, thank you, Irene and Victor. It's always a pleasure. Indeed. You've been listening to another podcast edition of Authors Access, where authors get published and published authors get successful. You can learn more about our guest on the Authors Access website, which is authorsaccess.com. We'd love to hear from you about tonight's show. Please send us your questions and comments to info at authorsaccess.com. Authors Access is a joint production of Reader Views Incorporated and Loving Healing Press. And for Reader Views, this is Irene Watson and I'll to saying goodnight. For Loving Healing Press, this is Victor Volkman in Ann Arbor, Michigan, wishing you all a good evening.